I'm wondering if anyone ever thought about the conversation that God must have had with himself when he was creating human beings. Did he start from the head down or did he start from the feet up? It says he formed them. Do you think he started with the feet and, and it just kept getting better and he finally got to the head and the brain and like, wow, we can really do something here. Well, my subject tonight is it has to do with the mind and the soul and the body. And when you start to study the human brain and what it can do and its, its uh, capability and um, what people have done with it, both to pos with, for positive uh, interaction and, and goals and things like that, and then to the negative as well, it's just it, 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 it's shocking what the human brain can do and will do if we are committed to the Father and His will. And taking control of our mind and our body and the soul of man is one of the most uh, interesting, I think, th subjects that I've ever had these, the opportunity to speak about. So let's, uh, if you'd uh, turn with me to Psalm 139, and we will read a few verses here. Psalm 139, it's a familiar passage. I'm going to read about 14 verses here. Psalm of David, it says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and know me, thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising, thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest me, thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the light shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from me, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. David is going at length to kind of help himself and us understand that we are a complex race, people. We can never get away from God. He will never let us alone. It doesn't matter if it's dark, if it's daylight. Either way, he is there, and he is very present in our lives. And as we think of this, the thing of being servants of God and serving him with our bodies, with our soul, with our mind, I think it's just a really interesting project that we have in front of us tonight. We're a walking piece of art. Our neurons in our brain help us walk, they help us talk, they have a lot to do with our hearing, they have a lot to do with our smell. The brain, the central part of our being, the mind, is just has miles and miles of interesting information that is there for a long time. Did you know that Anything that you've said 
or thought or read is somewhere in your brain. It's there. You know how someone sometimes you, you, you have a conversation and they start to think and they look upwards and they say, let me think here. And really what they're doing is digging around in their brain to try to figure out where it's at. And eventually it comes out. That's a fascinating piece of art. Some of you are in your 70s and 80s and maybe, maybe, no, not 90s, probably not here tonight. But that is pretty interesting. That little piece of three-pound mesh has a lot of details in. You think the computer is an interesting phenomenon? Your brain is a lot more, and the Father God has created that in a, just a really beautiful way. So I'm not sure where he started when he built and formed a man, but I think he, either way, the brain is by far the most amazing piece that we have at our disposal. It is large, it's complex. It's really the largest and most complex organ we have in our body. You think the heart does a lot? And it does. It keeps us alive. But the brain, without the brain and, and the, its, its uh, neurons, even the heart wouldn't continue on. Ben Carson, you may have recognized that name as the um, neurosurgeon at John Hopkins University for 30-some years. At the age of 33, he was the youngest neurosurgeon that uh, ever took the reins there at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. This is what he says about the brain, and I quote, there is nothing in this universe that even begins to compare with the human brain and what, is, what it's capable of. Billions and billions of neurons and hundreds of billions of connections. He goes on to say, to believe what some would say that we evolved with complexity of this brain from some pool of promiscuous biochemicals during a lightning storm, that requires a lot more faith than the kind of faith that I have in the Father and God himself. Worked on the brain, and, and he goes on to say how one time he, uh, the man was unconscious and he starts to dig around in the brain, and all he knew is there's a little piece in the middle there that he needed to find, and uh, didn't know if the man would either live or die. It was basically a 50-50% chance of him making it. And as he went in there and, and picked out the piece that he knew he needed to get, and um, didn't even know when he left the hospital that man would, would see the light of day the next day. And he came into the hospital the next morning, and this man was joking and laughing and just having a good time. But because of his knowledge of the brain and finding the missing piece and the wrong piece at the wrong place, this man had lived for a number of years after that. Very interesting piece of information that we have in our brains and that can really um, be given nothing but just an awe as we consider God's creation of the human brain. Its memory is phenomenal. It just goes on and on if we think about it. So if we are to be stewards of our brain, our mind, how do we then live? How do we um, go through life? What do we do with it? If we understand that we are God's servants, this thinking pattern that we have needs to be directed to God as well. We need to bless him and thank him for what he's done. And our, the right things need to go in. Um, it's, it's said that the eye, the, um, 
eye and its, its conversation with the brain sends like millions per second, millions of details back to the brain, back and forth in seconds. Can you imagine that? But the seeing eye is also just a tremendous piece of um, information that it sends back and forth to the brain constantly. The Greek meaning of our mind is actually intellect. It is how we think. It is, it is what makes our being. But interestingly, everything has to go in through our eye, in through our ears to collect information. And that is really what makes up us as human beings. We gain information, we collect information, and through that, that's really who we are. The information you collect about your work, it becomes who you are. Um, we read, we read, and it becomes part of our lives. And interestingly, you can sit down with pretty much any person and figure out within less than a minute pretty much who he is if you get him to dialogue with you because of what he reads and what he has taken in through his eyes and his ears and his senses. It's, it's the intellect that is within that God has given us. We take no thought is another meaning of the word of our mind. It's, just, it's something that just happens. It's perhaps. And our mind is also that of our opinion. And it, it encapsulates who we are through our opinions. And we portray that to others. Our mind seems to be kind of the control panel of where our thoughts and opinions are formed. And they're recorded. Like I mentioned earlier, they're recorded. Everything is recorded. And I wonder sometimes what God's reaction is to our recorded brain, what is in there, and what we've put in there, and what we've allowed in there. I understand that not everything that we think comes out, but eventually, I think our thoughts and the intents of our heart do come out if, they're, if we dwell on them and continue to work with certain things that make us who we are. I'd like to read a few verses in Romans 12. Again, a few uh, familiar verses, the first two verses. If you turn with me to that, Romans 12, very familiar verses. This has to do more with our bodies. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The cleansing of our mind. I think there needs to be something about us that we are careful what we take in. Now, if you, would, if you study some statistics on just the things that have changed in our thinking pattern the last 20, 25 years, it really has to do with our social media and the things that we are, the things that we are so easily can get. And it has is, it is, it is made the bipolar and the suicide rates and things just dramatically skyrocket. And it's really because of what we take into our minds. People have decided that it's not worth living with all the information. And really, it's not the information, but it's the wrong information. The wrong information can really um, set our minds and, and turn them the wrong direction. 
presenting our bodies. It's a reasonable service. We need to renew our mind, taking control of our thoughts and the intents of our heart. It is an obligation, I think, that we have to take our thoughts into captivity and allow God to work. Philippians 4 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When we fill our minds with the right thing, it makes a huge difference. What comes out? Proverbs 28, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Thinking about the whole idea of what goes into your mind, what comes out. Uh, a number of years ago, I was at uh, Atmore, Alabama for the prison crusade and um, had a really good week. And the warden, at the end of the week, said um, we had, they had this uh, faith-based um, chapel, which the men of faith were there, and then they bring other people in too, but they had this one dorm, was basically the Christians. But anyhow, at the end of the week, he said, um, would you gentlemen like to go see the men on death row? This was not a place that they took people regularly. And I'm thinking there was maybe 30 or 40 men on death row at this prison. And we said, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll go and talk to them and minister to them, whatever needs to be. These people aren't used to seeing, they're not used to seeing any kind of evangelistic anything, anybody. And it was in the back side of the prison. And we were not quite there. We were still from here to the, probably the graveyard away. And we heard banging and crashing like I haven't heard in a prison ever. And we opened that door and the, the clatter behind us, the door slammed behind us, and I heard noises like I have never heard before from a human being. People, I didn't think people can holler like that and cuss and, and just say words that are just terrible. And these are men that basically were cut off from society and had no dignity about themselves at all. And we... There was three levels, and it had the grates, you know, so you could basically hear the whole, everything that was going on in that building. I was shocked. That, it, it, it did something to me that nothing else has ever done. When men turn their minds away from the truth and knowing that their life is coming to a bitter end, it ruins. You talk about reprobate minds. I have never heard the likes, and I've never heard it since. But we tried hard to minister to these men, and we, we talked to them some, but some of them were beyond even approachable. We couldn't even approach them. When we fill our minds with good things, the opposite can happen. But when you fill your minds with corruption, and you're in that state of mind and being for that long, that is what nothing but a reprobate mind turned over to the wrong person. That did something to me that nothing else has ever done. I, I was just amazed how that a person could, could, could act and be that kind of a person. It is so important that we put good things in and we are intentional about following the master and giving him our, our all and putting the right things in. And I think God is expecting us as Christians to do that. There's a writer here by the name of Dr. Richard Paul, and he goes into detail about like the basically the idea of critical thinking, and not from a Christian perspective necessarily, but he says, I just found some of his writings kind of interesting, it was a long detail, but this is kind of his introduction to his uh, writing. 
He says, humans are not by nature, they're not rational or ethical, or predisposed to operate the world in the narrow terms of how to care for it or serve it. Their brains are directly wired into their own pleasure and pain, not that of others. They do inherently consider the rights and needs of others, yet humans have the raw capacity to become reasonable, they do have that, and ethical persons to develop as fair-minded and skilled thinkers. But to do so requires, first, to understand how your mind works and how to use the understanding and develop skills. So he's saying that our minds are not necessarily good until we determine to make him good. And I'd like to take that a step further until we determine to allow God to change us. And I think that this is not even coming from a Christian perspective, totally secular. But when we train our minds and teach our minds, and as young children and young babies and young people, it's very obvious that they become pretty selfish and they forget or certainly don't think about that their demands are unreasonable sometimes. And if we put ourselves in the right perspective, I believe God will give us the wisdom to be his servants and to do stewardship his way. Another um, kind of a negative again, and we'll get to the positives here in a little bit, but, um, and I may have read some of these before and have mentioned some of these men before, but there's a Frederick uh, Nietzsche, is uh, some writings that I find just pretty horrifying as well. Um, in his young days, actually his grandfathers on both sides were pastors, and um, went into the school system and, and was going was to study biblical theology, and through that um, started to think irrationally and, and really kind of went off in the deep end. But he does a lot of writings in, in his young days, actually in his 30s and 40s, and um, frustrated with the human race, basically. Frustrated with Christianity, probably dealt him the wrong cards or something. He says this, he said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murder of all murders? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe the blood from us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement have scared games, have sacred games, I'm sorry, shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Most we ourselves, must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? I found it interesting that he thought there's still got to be a God. He said, if I don't serve God, I am the God. And it's really the individualistic approach to life. And he goes on, and, and it was only a few years after he wrote that, he went into a totally so, um, solitary confinement, uh, lost his mind at 45 years old, and just went berserk, went crazy, and sat at his desk for days at a time. Couldn't write, couldn't read. Wouldn't read because his brain was just so fried. I think we need to be very careful as human beings to take care of the mind and the brain and the intelligence that we have because if we don't, God will take it from us. And the rationale from a person that is, that is dismissed, the very act of God and the very knowledge of God is terrible. He died about 10 years after he went into that solitary confinement, basically, and that was the end of his life. But really, some of his writings are still rotated around in our college systems today and are still studied in a big way. It's a shame. 
Let's think a little bit of taking care of our bodies now. These pieces of clay that God so um, interestingly has put on the earth. Um, our bodies are something that we, I think, should take care of. I think we should act as servants of God with the very flesh that he's given us. And it entitles the things of just, um, well, let me put it this way. Our body contains the soul that will live on. You take life away, the soul continues on. Our body can physically die. Our brain can physically shut down. But the soul goes on, as Scripture says. So for that reason, I think we should take good care of this body that we live in. This body contains the very hands and feet that Jesus will use to do his work. We are called to do his work. So shouldn't we, at the highest degree, take good care of the body that God has given us? The body contains the mouth that would be the mouthpiece that will minister to the needs of people. And within the body of man and wife, man and woman, we have the ability to produce the next generation, the DNAs of our children. And I think for that reason, again, it's interesting how our country is quarreling over life and gender and you name it. God, I believe, is asking us to follow biblical principles and to understand that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I like to think about the stewardship of the church body. We talked about the body, but I think our church body has a lot that we should be um, interested in and we should be a part of. Um, think about the different parts of the church, the different, um, we have the hands and the feet of the church. You have people that do multiple different things. I would like to beg us to get involved in our church and get involved, more involved, and take ownership and realize that it is God's church and we must get involved because I think God is asking for all that we have. The mind is often understood as a faculty that manifests itself in mental phenomenon like sensation, perception, and thinking, and reasoning, and memory, and belief, and desire, and emotion, and motivation. Back to the whole idea of our brain again. Man is, is capable of sending people to the moon. It's capable of building high-rise buildings. I visited with a young gentleman the other day that was like 21 or 22 years old, and he does big drafts of, of huge buildings, and just a very brilliant young man. And I'm like, wow, that is really interesting. A guy takes on his gift and uses it for a good way, and he can do things that... I certainly couldn't do, and um, does it all free-handed, a young Amish boy. I, I just found that really interesting, does it all free-handed. Romans 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. We read that, transformed and renewing of your mind. Hebrews 8.10, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 2 Corinthians 10, in another version, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought 
to make it obedient to Christ. Taking control and understanding that our minds can wander and will wander if we don't take them in captive, take our thoughts captive. Setting your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Our minds have, somebody has said it this way, we have a mental illness epidemic in our community countries, in our country. There's, there's a lot more of that going around, but he said it this way. He said, you know what, we all have kind of a mental illness, and it's what we call sin. We all have a little bit of it. We all have the, the mentality to live above sin, but our nature is sin, and if we don't watch it, our minds will turn and we will reject the very nature of God if we're not careful. The mind's outworkings are like as follows. They're, it's confused. There's people who are confused today. They're anxious, and they close down. There's evil. There's restless restlessness. There's rational decisions. We are deluded. And the Bible talks about these things of men and women that have taken their own way. They have troubled minds. They have depraved minds. They have sinful minds. In Romans 8, they have a dull mind, a blinded mind, a corrupt mind. I think God is asking us to live above some of the things that we've encountered in our lives. And I appreciate that the Christian faith has, has encouraged us to live above that. And I think we can, above the consequences and some of the sins of the past. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. In Proverbs 4.23, Jeremiah 33, three says, Call upon me, and I will answer you, and will show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. In 1 Corinthians, it says, we have the mind of Christ. Christians, we have the opportunity to put on the mind of Christ and to make it a part of our lives. 1 Corinthians 6 do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? Certainly not. Christ is asking us to live above the temptations of the world. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you know not that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And it has to do with our body and putting on and putting things into our body. One of the things that just is amazing to me is how the, if you spend any time in cities and outside of our little sheltered community is the tattoos that are going on. It's just amazing what people use and do for tattoos. And I, I just don't believe that's God's plan. There's people that I know that grew up with it, and I'm just shocked. I mean, is God really want us to mess with this beautiful piece of art that he's put together? I think we need to be very careful, and I, I, I trust that we can follow God's principles. I think if God would have wanted us to have tattoos, he would have had us born with them and pictured on our arms and legs and places like that. And I just am amazed what people put on. And what we take into our our mouth as well. One of the things that, that um, I think is maybe a culture problem as well is the, the, the drinking thing that has gone on 
and the social drinking, I think we need to be very careful about that. God is asking us to live above the temptations that are around us. Please, I think God desires us to take his plan all the way. He's calling us to prepare our hearts for something better. He's calling us to enlist in his plan. And when you enlist in the army, you are all in. You do it their way. And I think when we enlist in God's principles and God's plan, we are all in. Regardless, we have brought nothing into this world. It is certain we will carry nothing out. Hebrews 13.4, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, and that is Jesus and his kingdom. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And we'll read the account of the church at Laodicea. And the writer John is begging the church here for certain things and helping them help try to help them to see some of their the errors of their way. Revelation chapter 3 and 14. And unto the church and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, Laodiceans write, These things saith Amen, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold nor hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. And am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He's writing to a church. I believe God is asking the church of today, not just Weavertown Church, but all churches, all the men enlisted in his churches to call on the name of God and to be serious about following Jesus, his way, to evaluate where we are, to understand that he's coming again, he's coming back to receive his bride. Jesus is on his way back, maybe soon. Will you enlist and reaffirm that you are following him? Will you be his servant? Will you be his slave? Will you work for the kingdom? Will you be a steward? Kind of like the slaves in their day. They worked hard for the master. And they worked to please the master. Will you please the master? Will that be God's review of you 
at the judgment. God's plan when he built, when he actually formed the man and formed the human race was to be relational and to talk to us. And above that, to put his spirit within us, somewhere within all of us, if we're Christians, the Holy Spirit is there and is guiding us and will guide us if we allow him to. I wonder sometimes if the Spirit of God is doing his work, what he really wants to do in our lives. It is important that we are sold out for the Father and we care deeply about his kingdom. The events of our country, this country we call America, recently have just, I think it's just sad how that the human life is disregarded. And now they change the law and people are just not happy. The, the world is looking for a light for people to stand in the gap and to become men and women that can share the light and be the light to our country, to people, to our neighbors. I think God is asking all of us to lay down our life for him and to be more concerned about our neighbor than we are about ourselves. What have I done in the last months for my neighbors? What have I done for the non-Christian what have I done for the screaming man in the prison with really no hope of ever being released from prison? His only exit from there is basically the electric chair or something like that. There's men, I believe, in our towns and cities that are screaming for the master and screaming for something different. Will you... Will I answer the call? Stewardship and kingdom work cannot be separated. If we're involved in God's kingdom, we will be involved as servants of the master, and we will be excited about the gospel, as we talked about one evening. We'll be excited about the time that God has given us, and we'll be intentional about time and what we do with our time. I think we'll be intentional with our resources that like we talked about last evening. Maybe we should be more intentional and understand that God has given us the responsibility to use our resources in a good way for his kingdom, and I think we have. We have so many people among us that have done that and done it in a good way, and I want to bless each one of you for that. We've given a lot. God has given us so much, and we are only a part of his kingdom. This is our generation. This is the generation that is alive today, and may we be known as the generation that followed God with everything we had, with the gospel, with our time, with our resources, and now with our mind, our soul, our body.
The world is, I think, has changed in the last 20 or 30 years, and I think you could attest to that, some of that. But have we changed as a Christian? Have we changed our patterns? How much are we willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Somehow I think God is calling us to something better. And I think that God will give us the ability and the time and the effort, if we put effort in, to follow him in a good way. And let's do that. I, I've just appreciated this study so much. Thank you, Randall and your crew, for giving me the topic. I, I, like I said, I've learned so much from it. And I trust that our lives could be encouraged by that. I would like us to stand and sing the song, Fully Surrendered, Lord Divine. I will be true to thee. I didn't even check what the number is, but if um, somebody could lead that, Ken, could you lead that? Fully surrendered. I don't know what the number is. Somebody have that?
Thank you, Alfie, for sharing. It was, uh, I was really blessed to listen to what you had to say, and uh, I think we have things to put into action now. So let us not just hear, but let's be doers. Um, I forgot to announce that the offering is tonight, but we will also have offering uh, or have a bucket in the back tomorrow night in case you didn't bring money or um, you want to bring more tomorrow night. And that is for uh, Chris and Sylvia's neighbor, right? Their neighbor. Uh, so I'm going to pass these buckets around real quick, and then, uh, Ken, you can come up. Our assignment this evening is a discussion on the providence and direction of God for us. And I had to look at the dictionary, and Sam defined the providence of God last evening. I need a little bit of help in knowing exactly what direction to go with this. Providence is God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purpose for them. So as we kind of give our life story, uh, our purpose is to highlight God's provision, God's leading in our lives. Um, I think we approach this with a good bit of pause because this, this could sound kind of, uh, kind of like self-praise. But our journey has been Difficult in spots, easy in others. And we look back over the journey and recognize God's leading in all of it, actually. So we're going to do it a bit interactively like uh, Alan and Mary did the other evening. <clears throat> My life journey. <clears throat> I was born into the home of Sylvan and Elsie Kaufman. Sylvan is the youngest son of Amos and Sue Kaufman, originators of the uh, Kaufman's Fruit Farm. And Elsie is the oldest daughter of uh, Dave and Barbara Glick. They had six children. <clears throat> I am second born. First is Dave, and then it's me. Marvin, Susie, Twyla, Mary Jane, and Nancy. Now, you, you'll recognize four of these as being people that go in and out here. Um, and we were all here last Saturday. Mary Jane lives in Tennessee, Twyla is in Kansas, and uh, Marvin is in Iowa. Many people have confused Dave and me. And I suppose for good reason. We're about the same build. We're born 14 months apart. And Dave loves to come to me when, he, when people come to him and, and suppose that he is, that I am older than he is. He reminds me of that frequently. 
I'm not telling him the confusion is, is warranted. But though he is older, I'm more mature. That's why they get these things mixed up. I was the naughty one in the family. I suppose you could verify that with my mother. She's still living. She has good memories of the far past. I probably got more spankings than Dave and Mara put together. And I don't remember that my sisters got any. But we pride ourselves as, as brothers in helping mom raise Nancy. I'll get to that a little bit later. So that's my home background. That's my life journey. I don't even remember when it started. We'll get to my faith journey later. Ellen? Ich bin ein Deutsche von Lublin County. Yep, I was born in Lublin County in a family of 10 children. Uh, my twin brother and I were numbers five and six, and our next older brother was only 11 months old when we were born. So we kind of grew up as triplets. Instead of double trouble, it was triple. Like when we discovered a drum of soft, sticky tar on a hot summer day, I still remember the cleanup. I was born with a genetic colon disease, which is a major part of my physical story. I was four when my parents left the Horning Church and joined the River Brethren. That particular group of River Brethren is no longer existing. There was like three different groups of River Brethren. I never went to a Christian school or Sunday school and never memorized scripture. So, yeah, I look at you who've been there and it's like, wow, I wish I would have had that opportunity. <clears throat> but my siblings and I did attend the Mennonite Summer Bible School, and that was a big highlight in my life. Um, a bus would come around and pick us up, pick up the neighbor children who were not Mennonites, and I loved it. It was there that I did memorize some scripture a little bit, but mostly what I remember is that I, I received my first Bible. I would have been in third grade when I got my first personal Bible, and I got it at Bible school because I memorized the books of the Bible. And that Bible is still very precious. A number of years ago, um, I, I got that Bible out, and it was pretty ratty, and I took it to... Conestoga Bindery, and he said, do you really want to rebind this? And I said, yeah, I do. It's pretty special. Um, at age 12, I was around 12, or maybe 13, I'm not sure, uh, I was reading books about accepting Jesus. I didn't really feel a sense of guilt because I couldn't think of anything I was doing wrong but it's what a person should do to avoid hell. So I went through the motions, and but I didn't feel like crying. I remember kind of sniffling because I thought I should because <laughs> that's what the book said. <laughs> but I, I was sincere. I was sincere. Um, I did um, I want to live for God, 
And then I was baptized in the River Brethren Church. I think I was around 13. <clears throat> My faith journey uh, looks quite a bit different from hers, and that's uh, no reflection on her. Uh, I remember devotional life as a family, uh, taking turns reading the Bible, uh, verse by verse, uh, especially on a Sunday morning, we would, we would read the Sunday school lesson together. Um, I remember prayer time in the evening, and I, I think we had to, every other night, mom prayed and dad prayed every other night, and then several children with them. And I remember especially liking when dad prayed rather than mom because mom's prayers were so long. I attended summer Bible school at the Sim Kaufman farm. I don't know how many people are here today that would remember Sim Kaufman's summer Bible school. Oh, there's a number of us yet. That's, that goes way back to the, uh, well, before the mids. Where are we at here? I better not say. It's been a while. And I, uh, in grade six, in the, in the Hurl Press Summer Bible School materials, there's the opportunity to, to fill out a, uh, a decision card, a decision to follow Jesus. I remember Calvin Bottle was my teacher that summer, grade six. And I went to him after, after class uh, one of the last evenings and uh, nervously uh, filled out my, uh, my decision card and handed it to him. I don't remember any particular comments from him but he and I would have interacted uh, in numbers of ways since that as well. I went to Weavertown School, grades one to nine. Weavertown School was started in, what, 53? I have that right? And I would have gone my first year then in 54, I suppose. I attended LMH, LMHS, as you know it now, Langston Mennonite School, for my sophomore, junior, and senior years. Now, understand, please, that Langston Mennonite School back in that day was a lot different than it is today. The teachers all wore plain coats, um, if that says anything. The, the requirements for students were stiff. I remember my cousin Judy on a registration day, she had some rickrack on her, on her elbow, on her dress sleeve, and they made her take that off. Now things went downhill really fast in the, in the 70s then, I guess. Anyhow, I especially remember some, uh, some particular men and, and classes there. The senior year Bible Doctrine class by David Thomas, I remember that. Uh, the faculty had just a number of godly men, Myron Dietz, David Thomas, Larry Wenger. Um, I graduated there in 65, like I said. There was also another uh, institution in the area back then that impacted me quite a bit spiritually. That was Millwood Winter Bible School. Now, the, the Winter Bible School we have here at Weavertown is actually a spinoff from that. Millwood Winter Bible School back in the day was a daytime Bible school. That was when men were farmers, basically. As I remember it going to, with dad before I went to school, that place was pretty well packed. That place was alive. 
It was a lot of people. And men like uh, Jodas Yoder, Norman Bechtel, uh, Sanford Shetter, uh, Ben Lapp, Ben Lapp from uh, yeah, Northumberland County. Um, I should be able to say more, but th those men impacted me probably more than I realized at the time. Good, solid Bible teaching. There were co-workers in the orchard that impacted me as well. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Gid Stolz, who's our former bishop, and uh, Floyd Stolz, who's, um, let's see, does Floyd have family here? Alta, Alta would be Floyd's uh, sister-in-law. Floyd's first wife, Lo, was, was a, a biler. Um, yes, Frida, yes, yeah, yes. Frida would be a, a brother to, or a sister to Floyd. I remember them, um, not only good, solid spiritual discussions, and some of them were debates, and some of them were arguments, this was back in the day before we had aut automated equipment that made noise in the wintertime. And uh, we, we spent all day out there in the, in the solitude, sometimes in the cold, sometimes in the heat, sometimes uh, otherwise. But uh, one of the things that, that we did, or they did, especially Floyd and Gid, was memorize scripture. That little red book that had uh, scripture verses in for each day of the year. They had that thing down pat. They would do a month at a time. And they were just rattled off. Um, when we started into the study of um, the Gospel of John in Sunday school, then they decided that uh, we're going to memorize this as we go. Well, Sunday school was in the every other Sunday, but still we had like 12, 16 verses at a time for a Sunday school lesson. And these men kept it up. I remember joining them. I I don't remember anything beyond about chapter six. I don't know if we stopped or, or what, but uh, the, those first chapters of the Gospel of John could come back to me fairly easily because of that uh, exercise back there in the day. At age 16, there were two events that majorly impacted my journey of faith and my direction for life. Dad was taken from this life very suddenly in May of 64. Dave was 17, I was 16. And on down the line, Nancy was two. Mom was dedicated in caring for us as best she could alone. And she didn't tell us till many years later, but several years ago we were cabin together. And mom, mom would have told us that if she would have had the opportunity to remarry, she would have refused for our sakes. I'm not sure what that says about us. But to me, it says a lot about mom. It didn't seem fair to me. We had many people step up and assist us in ways they could, but none of those could ever come close to replacing dad. Of dad's brothers, Uncle Chris was the one uh, who most replaced dad as far as his interest in my life. I could uh, give a number of instances um, when he showed his care for me. 
but then two years later he passed away of cancer. So I was back to ground zero. Well, not really, there's, there's people around me. There were then, still are today. <clears throat> the other event of um, 1964 was a summerhood, servanthood work camp in New York City, sponsored by the East Mennonite Board of Missions and Charities. The best way I can describe this is a little like some of the youth group did last, last week when they went to Coward Bible School and, and painted and did physical work, but alongside that there was Bible study and, and uh, spiritual interaction, spiritual uh, nurture. So at Fox Street Mennonite Church, Daytime work involved painting the interior of the church. There were, you know, the Bible study and prayer time each day. Evenings included riding around town on the subway. That was exciting uh, for this little guy of, uh, what was I, 16, 17, 16 probably. Our group was about six Mennonite youth from local Mennonite churches. But that experience, along with attending school with Mennonite youth, most of whom were planning for college and careers, gave me a real longing to go to college. But I had no real goal for college. It was just the thing I wanted to do and the thing that other people did. Well, the ride back from New York City that summer redirected my, my ambitions about college. On the way back, two girls in the back, and I was driving, and there's another fellow in the front, and these were Lancaster Conference young people, I think all three of them. We're discussing youth groups and youth activities. Their youth groups were small, didn't provide much outlet for social interaction or service to others, uh, not much outreach of any kind. Whereas our youth group was large and very active, Socials and singings and also ministry, track band. Young people did only know what that was, track band. Sunday afternoon singing for elderly um, project. We had a garden, raised, raised vegetables and uh, sold it. Um, chorus and chorus programs, uh, Sunday evening singings. They had interacted, they had talked about their youth groups and what they're doing and not doing, and then they asked me about mine. And uh, I, I told them what ours is like, the size of it and the interaction and the much, much ado and a lot of going and good interaction. And the end of that spiel that I gave them, I admitted to having a longing for higher education along with many of my classmates and leaving all this behind. One of the girls in the back seat just about jumped into the front seat. Now this was before seat belts. She said, Ken, don't you dare. That fixed it. My mid-teen years. <clears throat> In respect to my family, I won't give a lot of details about our family, but um, in my mid-teens, the conflict between my parents escalated. 
to the point where the church and relatives got involved. And then my parents were excommunicated. Not a stable situation for a young teenager. I saw this picture at a store, and I said, that's me. I'm on a stormy sea without an anchor. So why would I keep this picture? It's old, it's discolored. Mel Stolstrus mentioned that we should have, uh, we should build stones of remembrance. And as he was saying that, I said, yeah, I did. <laughs> Here it is. So, but why would I remember this? <clears throat> though, it's the, though the picture is aged, it is my Ebenezer stone. Hitherto hath the Lord helped me. And it causes me to worship. When I look at that picture, I, I just have to worship God for what he did in my life. <clears throat> in that storm, I questioned religion as I saw it. I questioned my worth as a person. I had a very low worth, self-worth as a person. Even to the point I wasn't even quite aware how low it was, but when we were dating, I guess I said something and he would say, well, I didn't say that, you did. I was like, why is he saying that? <clears throat> At times I'd read uh, John 15, but not your heart be troubled, but it didn't help much. I didn't know which way to go. So I started down the wrong path, connecting with other light-minded youth, looking for fun things to do, which temporarily blocked the pain inside. In the course of twists and turns, I attended Weaver Town occasionally, and out there in the parking lot, uh, Amos Esch kindly asked me a pointed question. How is it between you and God? I couldn't answer. I knew it was not good. <clears throat> I desperately wanted peace. Soon after that, I attended revival meetings here at Weavertown. I think it was Sanford Yoder. I'm not sure even who the evangelist was, but... <clears throat> I responded to the to the call. I was afraid to die, <clears throat> and I was tired of living the life I was. <clears throat> I confessed my sins and made a serious commitment to living a godly life. I had peace at last. I was drawn to Weavertown Church and Youth Group mainly because I finally felt an anchor something stable. Even though at the time I couldn't put my finger on it or could put words to it, but it was just something that, yeah, later in my life I was like, yeah, that's what it was. I felt the anger, I felt stability here. <clears throat> I became a, a member then at Weavertown and actively joined a youth group. And it was here, here at Weavertown that I grew in my Christian life. One of the Weavertown youth boys gave a topic right here on prayer at a young people's meeting. 
and I was deeply touched by his spiritual death, depth. I breathed a prayer. God, I know I'll never be good enough for him, but could I have someone like him? Sometime later, he asked me for a date. He is still my spiritual hero. So I'll pick up where this um, beautiful, vivacious Hearst girl joined our youth group. Though she wanted one like that, she really played hard to get. She wasn't going to fall into his arms. I was scared of him. (laughs) We had an interesting uh, incident or interaction. track band used to assign groups of four people to either be on the streets in Reading, York, Lancaster, where else did we go? Philadelphia? Oxford. Oxford. On a Friday night and pass out tracks, but we also distributed door to door in Wilmington on a Saturday afternoon. Well, lo and behold, I was assigned to Wilmington one Saturday afternoon. There was four of us. And this young lady was one of them. And uh, I think Leona Peachy was another one. Do you remember Leona? <laughs> and I think Omer Stolzfus, uh, same as Omer we called him, would, would have been the other fellow. It was usually pairs, two and two. So I arranged to have this young lady be the other part of my pair. Scare her half to death, but she survived. That was kind of an introduction for us. We dated uh, two and a half years. We married in July of 69, uh, you know, for better or for worse. Our first home was in Grandpa's home on the west side of the market, that little little brick house that's now the, the office there at Kaufman's. We have five sons and one daughter. I'll go from oldest to youngest here. Lamar is our uh, digital nomad, he calls himself. He had been in China a while, teaching school. He had been in New York City many years teaching school. Uh, then he went to Thailand and, is, and was developing websites. Well, you can do that anywhere in the world, I guess. He was mostly interested in, in the uh, New York City school system and, and needs for, for um, you know, software for their system. He taught at faith for quite a while. He taught at faith a number of years. He had a degree in math and in music, and uh, yeah, they're, they're very compatible. So then from Thailand, he moved to Argentina, and what a story uh, that was. That's right, Vietnam, not Thailand, Vietnam. Anyway, <clears throat> the next son is Kevin. 
His wife, Dolores, and four children live in Abbeville, South Carolina. Third son is Sheldon. His wife, Joanne, and four children live at Faith Builders. Our only daughter, Jewel, and her husband, Lamont Mullet, and eight children live in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, just uh, 45 minutes away. Claire and his wife, Anna, daughter of Dan and Liddy, uh, Stolzfus, and four children live on the Kaufman homestead. And when I want to work, I, I work for Claire, if I want to work. Gail and his wife, Jenny, and four children have just returned from Thailand three weeks ago and will be living in Leola. So we have 24 grandchildren, and they're evenly divided, 12 boys and 12 girls. Now, we just had family camp a couple weeks ago. I don't know if family camp is the right name or not. I think it's more like a family circus. <laughs> These guys are full of fun. If you know the Hearst family now, she didn't tell us all about herself, but uh, they're, they're very drama-minded. They, they love to act, and they love to talk, and they love to laugh. Uh, when, when they were young at home, what was it, on a Sunday afternoon, they would have... When they had visitors. They would, oh, when you had visitors. They would do shows. What's a show? I don't know. Anyway, some of this came down to the next generation. We have Jabberwocky and we have um, possum pot pie and all kinds of crazy things when, when our children and grandchildren get together. Lots of fun. Go ahead. Talk about something more serious. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, like I mentioned, I have a genetic colon disease. And uh, at Galen's birth, it kind of, I had another health crisis when a mass was discovered in my abdomen. I dealt with a lot of fear for my children, six um, children, and the oldest was 11. But God ministered to me through his word. And I made a search in the scripture about fear, and I was just so encouraged and strengthened by all the verses that say, fear not. I held on to that. Not knowing if I would live to see my baby grow up, I filled in his baby book. And when I filled in the line about the meaning of his name, I was taken aback. I was like, why? Why did I give him that name? And as I was writing his name, the meaning of his name in the book, I felt a presence beside me whispering, healer. That's the meaning of his name. At, um, when Galen was three months old then, I had the mass of adhesions removed. Uh, which was from three previous colon surgeries. <clears throat> In my early 50s, I had my fifth and sixth colon surgery. It was a hard year, and we felt deeply indebted to the outpouring of Weavertown Church, who supported us in so many ways, uh, especially financially. Um, <clears throat> the first surgery in that year 
would have been a colonoscopy while the other part was healing and then later that was reversed. So it was a hard year uh, physically and emotionally for me, plus a baby. <clears throat> a day after I came home from my sixth surgery, my digestive system went in reverse and I was back in the hospital with excruciating pain. I felt like I was dying and I cried out to the God. I said, Lord, am I going to die after all this money that they church paid thousands of dollars? Now I'm dying? Again, I felt a presence beside me. And these were the words I heard. I will be with you. I will never forget those words. Come what may. And that was a truth that... Um, became a really a big part of my life. It doesn't matter what our problem is. God will be with us. Is he always going to make it turn out right? No, not necessarily, but he will be with us. It was, a, I think it was two or three weeks after I was home from the hospital. Weavertown had um, ordination. I was still very weak from my surgery and still dealing with a lot of pain. So I said, I don't think I will go with the evening that they did the choosing. He was already, I think, 51 or 50. I was like, he's not going to be in the lot anyway. I'll just stay home. Well, he came home and said, I'm in the lot. I was at home. <laughs> I survived. <clears throat> Twelve years ago, I had another health crisis, and on my three darkest days of unknowns, God put a rainbow in the sky just for me. Was there a promise of healing? No, but a promise of his presence. The picture of the stormy sea no longer defines me. I wish for a, a picture that would define me. Over the years, I was like, I wish I could find a picture that would define me now. And, um, and then several year, number of years ago, I did a book study with some ladies from out of the, not here in this area. And they gave me this gift. Ah, that's me now. Look how free I am. And I know he's holding me. Sounds like we better wind this up here. A few other ministries that we were involved with over the years, uh, MIC, um, the um, people talk more. the marriage seminars we've been involved in uh, just been a blessing to, to watch that grow and develop uh, let me say again like I've said before this is not about us we have a team of people here that make this happen and uh, it still continues to grow, and we're, we're trying to figure out um, when we step back and 
other people going with it. Um, we're, we're trying to work in that direction. I was in the MIC board for a number of years, from 91 to 03, which meant travels and uh, people and places and meetings. And uh, yeah, we got around. Uh, that was interesting, but we hoped that our efforts there would have been to God's glory. Uh, back a little further. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to shut this down now. Okay. Go ahead. You may leave if you want to go. <laughs> In the mid-80s, as I was bringing my children to school, there was a, a boy in fifth grade standing at the corner of the school acting retarded. And it really touched me because his mom was my friend, his father had died, and I felt so sorry for him. And I prayed, Lord, is there something I can do for that boy? I was friends with, at that time, IU 13 Van would come to Weavertown School to help the struggling students. And I was a friend with her, and I stopped in one day, and I said hi, and she said, Mom, she said, Ellen, I have so many students. Is there a mom that could help me? And I'm like, can I? May I? She said, I'll give you the worst one. I don't know what to do with him. He's completely shut down. He's like a zombie. It was the one I had prayed for. <clears throat> with this, within six months, we were able to, he was starting to function somewhat, uh, except in some subjects he was struggling. And so um, I started tutoring in a closet, a walk-in closet over there. And um, <clears throat> and then a couple years later, they dug under the uh, south, yeah, the west, west and between the stairs. Yeah. And so today, there. there's the library room and a resource room, and that was for me. <clears throat> By the time this boy was in eighth grade, he was a key player on the ball field. He was not retarded. He had a learning disability, yes, but he was not retarded. Currently, I'm, I am I quit there then after I became a grandma because I didn't want to be tied down. I was uh, tutoring part-time. Currently, I'm involved in helping the Amish schools. There's a big need out there as they do not have resources for the struggling student, and so I'm very busy. I get calls from parents, teachers, helpers, and sometimes the school board to come and help. I'd like to close with 1 Samuel 20, verse 12, where Achish, uh, I'm not sure who he was in, in, in line with David, but he asked David, whither have you made a road today? Now, he wasn't talking about road building or bridge building. He was talking about where, where, did, you, where did you go today? What did you accomplish? So I asked myself, I should ask myself this every day. Were they having made a road today? Did we do what God called us to do today? Did we impact the people that God brought into our lives purposely today? Or did we ignore them? Um, yeah, just a challenge for all of us, for us, to be where God wants us to be. Thank you for listening.